In 1 Kings chapter 22, we read of King Jehoshaphat, leader of Judah, visiting Ahab, the king of Israel. And as these two met together, Ahab asked Jehoshaphat if he might consider joining him in a battle to reclaim the city of Ramoth-Gilead, because the king of Syria was overseeing it, and it was in the king of Syria's hand. And so Ahab solicited Jehoshaphat, inviting him, saying, Will you go with me to battle at Ramoth-Gilead? And Jehoshaphat replied, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. However, because Jehoshaphat was a good king, he was a king who, according to Scripture, walked in the earlier ways of his father David. Because King Jehoshaphat, as Scripture says, did not seek the Baals, meaning he wasn't an idolater, but instead sought the God of his father and walked in the commandments of God, because Jehoshaphat's heart was courageous in the ways of the Lord before they made any moves to either prepare for or head out into battle against the king of Syria, Jehoshaphat called on Ahab to, according to 1 Kings 22.5, inquire first for the word of the Lord. Inquire first for the word of the Lord. And so Ahab, that wicked, idolatrous king that he was, he gathered up all of his favorite prophets, about 400 of them, and Ahab asked the entire group of prophets, shall I go up to battle against Ramoth-Gilead or shall I refrain? This is the question that he asked. Now these supposed prophets, they're not dumb. They know what Ahab already wants to do. They know what Ahab's mind is set upon doing because he had already made it clear to them back in 1 Kings 22, verse 3, when he said this, Do you know that Ramoth-Gilead belongs to us and we keep quiet and do not take it out of the hand of the king of Syria? So Ahab had already tipped his hand. This is exactly what Ahab wanted to do. And so he brought in the prophets and asked them the question, Now, do you think that any of these prophets... Even just one of these prophets might have the guts to tell Ahab the truth. Do you think any of these 400 prophets might have the courage, the commitment, or the fortitude to say to Ahab what God actually said? Or would they simply tell the king what he already wants to hear? making their own lives easier in the process. Because you and I know that our lives are easier when we tell people what they want to hear, not the truth that they need to hear, right? All 400 of these prophets, right down to the last one, said in unison, Go up, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. One of these prophets even went so far as to visualize it for King Ahab with an object lesson, as we read in 1 Kings 22, verse 11. We read that there, Zedekiah, the son of Chanana, made for himself horns of iron and said, Thus says the Lord, with these you shall push the Syrians until they are destroyed. And along with Zedekiah, all the prophets prophesied so in agreement with him and said, Go on up to Ramoth-Gilead and triumph, for the Lord will give it into the hands of the king. 
Now the word of 400 false prophets, all telling Ahab what he wanted to hear, all encouraging him to do what he had already committed in his mind to do, 400 prophets, all speaking smooth and flattering words to the king, was all Ahab needed. But it wasn't enough for Jehoshaphat. Because seeming to sense the dishonest and wily words of these so-called prophets, King Jehoshaphat said, Is there not here another prophet of the Lord of whom we may inquire? Obviously, the king of Judah, being a man who loved the Lord, who sought to obey the Lord, he didn't buy what these prophets were selling. And so he hoped to hear the actual word of God spoken. He hoped to hear God speak through the mouth of a true prophet. See, Jehoshaphat was not content to listen to a squad of yes men. He wasn't satisfied with the words of these squishy, cagey avoiders of the truth, the ones who thought more highly of their own ease in Ahab's court than they did the word of God. Jehoshaphat wanted to hear the word of the Lord. He wanted to know the Lord's will because he would rather obey God's word than follow his own or follow Ahab's heart or desire on these issues. Jehoshaphat hoped to hear the clear, unadulterated declaration of the Lord from a man who unashamedly spoke that word regardless of the consequences. And immediately... Immediately, that once Jehoshaphat said that, immediately Ahab knew who to call. A man that was conspicuously absent from this squad of king's court prophets. And he told Jehoshaphat, there is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord. Micaiah, the son of Imlah, but I hate him. For he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. See, Ahab's default position wasn't to call the man of God into his court to hear the truth of God, but instead to call in the 400 false prophets to be encouraged by their lies, to be told what he already wanted to hear. Ahab would rather be flattered than take heed to the truth of God brought to him by one of the Lord's true and faithful servants. And for this reason, he didn't invite Micaiah into his court, and he hated the only prophet with the courage to speak the word of God to him. And little did Ahab know that the Lord had actually declared disaster for Ahab at the battle of Ramoth-Gilead. At the battle of Ramoth-Gilead, Ahab was going to meet his death. And Micaiah came to him, the only one with the courage to prophesy these words. And no sooner did Micaiah say it, that Mr. Object Lesson himself, Zedekiah, approached Micaiah and struck him on the cheek, saying, how did the Spirit of the Lord go from me to you? You see, False prophets whose positions of influence are threatened by the word of the Lord, by legitimate prophets, tend to respond violently. Now, it would be easy for us to say, what a fool Ahab is, wouldn't it? But before we go thinking to ourselves that this Ahab was a real fool, I want you to just for a second consider your own heart. And see in yourself 
the same tendency, the same default inclination as that of Israel's king. I mean, think about it. Don't we all tend to listen to and prefer and appreciate those who speak soft and soothing words to us? Don't we appreciate those who speak words that confirm or agree with what we already think and believe? Who speak words that encourage us to do what we already have set our mind to doing? Words that fan us toward or support us in the practice of our own desires, our own pleasures, our own wants? Of course we do! We don't like hearing that we're sinners. We don't like hearing that we need to change. We don't like hearing the truth when it's hard and it's painful. We'd rather hear someone come to us and say, you're just, you're so great. But this is a fundamental truth of the gospel, that you and I are not good. We are sinners. We are corrupt. We are in need of salvation. A salvation that is only available by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is nothing we can do to earn it or to achieve it. And on top of that, we might even begin hating and disliking and antagonizing and avoiding those who, in obedience to the Lord's command, speak difficult words of truth to us. We can, and we often do, act way more like Ahab than we'd like to admit. Thinking to ourselves, in our own minds, what Ahab said out loud, but I hate him. He never prophesies good concerning me. I don't want anything to do with him. He never supports me in what I want to be, what I want to do, what I believe, but he instead rebukes me and admonishes me, and I hate to be rebuked, and I hate to be admonished. We've even gone so far as to believe and think that rebuke and stern admonition for the sin in our life is actually contrary to humble, childlike faith. The humble, childlike faith that Jesus called for in this chapter on humble, childlike faith. You see where this text is located, right? It is located in a discourse on humble, childlike faith. But instead, we might cry out when somebody comes to us and says, you've got some sin in your life that we need to deal with. Instead of hearing, we might cry out, judge not! Don't judge me! A most misunderstood text that is quoted quite often out of context. Jesus doesn't want any of us to judge each other. This is patently false, by the way. Christians are tasked with a duty to lovingly, sternly, and truthfully judge one another for the sake of our growth up into Christ-likeness. But we tend to see rebuke as incompatible with humility, don't we? We tend to see rebuke and admonishment as the polar opposite of humility. And oftentimes, instead of dealing with the sin or hearing the sin, we get more upset at the tone of those who might bring a rebuke to us. We might get more upset at the fact that they had the audacity to point out some sin in our life that needs to be dealt with. We get more upset about that than we do the fact that there is sin in our own life that needs to be reproved. Humble, childlike believers recognize the need for others to point out sin in our own lives. We all have blind spots. There are all things in our lives that we cannot see. 
We need each other to point out the sins in our own life. Because every time, all the time, fighting against, rooting out, confessing, and repenting of our sin ought to be at the very top of our list of priorities. And so when we get more upset at the Micaiahs in our lives, those who bring the word of truth to us, than we do with the 400 who bring words of flattery, that's not good. So which are you? Are you the Jehoshaphat who desperately seeks the truth of God's word brought to bear in your life no matter how painful it will be and even when it crosses you or rebukes exactly what you want to be or do and calls you to the complete opposite? You listen or are you an Ahab who'd rather inquire of and listen to 400 smooth-talking false prophets? You see, Ahab ended up being killed in the battle at Ramoth-Gilead, but the false prophets never told him that that was going to happen. False prophets never do. They're too proud, they're too concerned about ease and influence in their own lives to tell you the truth. But real disciples concern themselves with the faith, with the repentance with the growth of their fellow Christians. True believers don't lie to one another. We don't flatter each other. We don't blow smoke. And when someone comes to us and rebukes us of our sin, we don't grow bitter. We don't become unforgiving. None of these are appropriate responses. And for this reason, the Lord Jesus Christ, continuing his discourse on the subject of humble, childlike faith, the theme of this entire chapter, called on his disciples to practice such humble faith by going and telling those who've sinned against them what they've done. And for those disciples who have their sin pointed out to them by someone that they've offended, Jesus called on them to repent or face dire consequences. Will you listen to Micaiah when he comes to you with the truth of God's word? Will you be a Micaiah who goes to one who's sinned against you to tell them the truth of God's word? If so, Jesus has set down for us how we are to do this in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 20. And he begins in verse 15, saying, If your brother... You see that, right? In verse 15. If your brother... So right off the bat we see a couple of things. First, Jesus is not here telling us how to deal with public sins. He's telling us how to deal with personal sins by using the singular word brother. This is not a prescription for how we deal with leaders or members in the church who commit very public sins because such sins, as we read in Scripture, are all, always dealt with publicly. We see a few examples of this in Scripture. 1 Corinthians 5 is one example. There we read of a man who was openly committing sexual immorality, 1 Corinthians 5.1 tells us, of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. A man has his father's wife. For this man, perpetrating so wicked a sin publicly and without repentance, the Apostle Paul directed the church in 1 Corinthians 4 and 5, when assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. So you see, the Apostle Paul called for the public purging of the wicked person from among them. And notice why. 
This is the point of it all, that his spirit might be saved. This is the goal of this public expulsion. It is to restore the person, to reconcile the person, to help them see their need for repentance. And while there are some who might balk at the idea that such drastic and perhaps even harsh measures would ever lead someone to repentance, in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, this unrepentant man who was expelled from the church actually did repent and was restored back into the church. This is what Paul speaks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 when he wrote, For such a one this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. The man repented of his sin, and Paul called upon the church to reaffirm their love for him. The point of the process was the restoration of this man to fellowship in the church, and once he repented, he was reconciled with the church. A second example of public sin being publicly called out is recorded in Paul's letter to the Galatians. Because there we see Paul opposing Peter to his face because Peter was acting hypocritically in public. He even, by his hypocrisy, led Barnabas astray. And so Paul wrote in Galatians 2.14, When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, or Peter, before them all, meaning in public, if you, can't, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Jews. Public figures committing public sins are not covered under the prescription of Matthew chapter 18. This text instead focuses on the proper method of addressing and dealing with personal sins. Sins committed against you by another Christian. You see that, right? The word brother there in 1815 indicates that this is sins committed against uh, another believer a fellow Christian, those who believe in or profess to believe in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And here's something we got to realize. One of the realities of being a human, one of the realities that we all must understand and come to grips with is that we will sin against each other. Your brothers and sisters in Christ, they are not Christ. Only Christ is sinless and perfect. Only Christ is the friend who sticks closer than a brother. Every single person in your life, except for Christ, will at some point or another let you down by sinning against you. And you, because you are not Christ, you will also let somebody else down by sinning against them. We are all weak and we are all imperfect. We are all locked in a furious and relentless war against our flesh. We are locked in a war against the temptations we face in and from the world. Locked in a battle against the powers and the principalities in the spiritual places and the devil in his demonic realm. And sometimes we lose a battle here and there. Sometimes we end up sinning against each other. And when that happens, that we are sinned against or we sin against someone else, Jesus has set down the pathway for the humble, childlike believer to follow. He set down the prescription for the one who is great in the kingdom of heaven to follow. And listen, Jesus didn't leave the process up to us. He didn't leave it up to me and you 
to subjectively determine how we're going to deal with somebody who sins against us. Jesus knows each and every one of us well enough to understand that left to our own devices, we will default to varying degrees of vengeance, not applications for restoration. We will demand two eyes from the one who robbed us of one eye. And so Jesus here makes it clear, we do not get to choose how we respond to the Christian who sins against us. Our flesh does not get to govern our attitudes and our reactions. And when we do respond according to our own sense of what we think is proper, that's pride, plain and simple. It's us believing that we know better than Jesus himself. May it never be. Nope, we are to follow Jesus to the letter. We are to follow Christ's outline for reconciliation. And again, remember the context. Jesus is here teaching the 12 disciples about what it means to be truly great in the kingdom of heaven. That those who would be great must turn and become like children. And unless we do, we will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And to be like children here means to recognize your humble status. That you who follow Christ, when you turn to Him, you relinquish everything to Him. And we deny ourselves, we take up our cross, and we follow Him. And as we follow Him, we recognize that we have no status to fight for. We have no preeminence over our fellow brothers and sisters to strive against each other to maintain. But instead, as Jesus said, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and a servant of all. And he who is the least among you is the one who is great. However, when we think, right, of humble, childlike disciples, we don't automatically connect that with those who rebuke and sternly admonish those who sin against them. Those are two things we don't usually put together, right? And yet, Jesus here makes it clear that this is an integral component of humble discipleship. And because we don't make the connection between humility and reproof for sin, we can far too often take great offense when our sins are reproved. reproved. We can be offended when our sins are brought to, atten- to our attention. And rather than listening and repenting in sackcloth and ashes for the sins that we've committed, we get upset. Now again, Pay close attention to the scenario Jesus presents here in verse 15. If your brother sins against you. Do you see that word there, sins? The word there, sin, refers specifically to violations of the divine law. Violations of the command of God. This is not about how others about others violating our preferences or our opinions. This is, not about, this is not a lesson on how to deal with someone whose personality you find bothersome or even infuriating. This is not a five-step strategy for correcting someone who makes life choices that you don't appreciate. This is not a program for rebuking others who fall short of your self-defined personal criteria for how others ought to live and behave. This is not about personal... Uh, offenses that are not sin. This is not about hurt feelings and other such subjective responses. For such things as these, the exhortation of Peter in his first letter helps us. In 1 Peter 4.8, he wrote, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Above all, he said, 
the highest priority, the priority you place above everything else, above your anger, above your bitterness, above your annoyance, is to love one another earnestly. Keep loving your fellow believer. And in love, be gracious and forgiving and charitable with those who might offend, but don't actually sin against you. And keep loving your brother by trying yourself not to be a source of pain and offense to them. And when either of you fail, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Matthew 18, 15 to 20 is specifically about those who've sinned against you in that they've disobeyed or breached or profaned the law of God with respect to you. By this we mean, if someone, for example, has lied about you, someone has slandered you, someone has gossiped against you or about you, someone has bore false witness against you, someone has stolen from you, someone is harboring bitterness and unforgiveness against you, if someone encourages division and quarreling between you and another brother... For such sinful acts as these, whether they are committed against you or whether you have committed them against somebody else, this course of action called for by Jesus in Matthew 18, 15 to 20 applies. And when this occurs, what does Jesus tell us to do first? Look at verse 15 again. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Go and tell you, the one sinned against. Go and tell the one who has sinned against you, his or her fault. Now listen, this is an imperative, meaning it is a command. It is a non-negotiable. If you've been sinned against and it is affecting you, you are commanded by your Lord Jesus Christ to go and tell the person their fault. Jesus makes this crystal clear because this isn't our default position. Far too often, we assume that the person that we're angry against should just know that we're angry. But listen... You can't read other people's minds. Other people can't read your mind. This is why Jesus commands you to go and tell. If you're holding on to something in your mind that you're upset with someone against because they've sinned against you, just know you have no right to hold on to that bitterness or anger if you haven't gone and told them because they have no idea. Our brains are not windows. More commonly, we don't go tell We'll fall in, instead, we'll fall into sin ourselves by grumbling to others about what happened, about what that person said to us or what that person did to us. We'll sit and whine about it to anyone who will listen, or we will pull away and disassociate ourselves from the one who sinned against us. Perhaps we'll even leave the church body we are a part of because we simply refuse to deal with the issue. And listen, none of these options are left open to you by Christ. They are all sins for which you ought to be reproved. Don't speak to others about the issue. Don't hold on to bitterness and unforgiveness with the issue. Do not turn the cold shoulder against a fellow Christian. These are all acts of disobedience. And if you are doing them right now, you are disobeying the command of Jesus. These are sins of revenge against your fellow believer. And Scripture is clear. You and I are never called to take revenge against another. Revenge is out of the question for the Christian. The Lord and the Lord alone is the only one equipped to justly and righteously mete out perfect vengeance according to his matchless and his wonderful will. But you, grieved Christian, you are commanded by Jesus to go to the person who sinned against you and tell them. And if you refuse, then you are sinning. You are ensnared 
You are in sin's trap, and you might be the one choked to death. Don't let it be. And note again, you go to the person who sinned against you. You. Don't go to others telling them in hopes of either getting them on your side or hoping that they might be the back door or the channel by which your charge might get back to the person without you having actually done it or you haven't actually saying anything. Listen, disciple of Christ, if people tell you their complaints against another, the first thing you must ask is, have you gone to them? Have you followed the prescription of the Lord Jesus Christ and gone to them? If they say no, you put up the hand. That's it. And you rebuke them. You should not have come to me before you obeyed Christ and went to them. And you, be sure that you never bring a complaint to another person on behalf of an offended party who will not themselves obey Christ. Do not be the back door that goes to other people and says things like, or, or the, do not be the one through whom complaints reach other ears. Don't be that type of busybody who goes to another with things like, you know what people are saying about you, right? You know I've heard that so-and-so is upset with you. No, you firmly admonish the one who brought this charge to your attention in disobedience to the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't command us to play a game of broken telephone. But he commanded the one who's, who has been sinned against to go directly to the one who sinned against them, and that is the only acceptable way. We hear that. That is the only acceptable way. You, the one who has been sinned, upon, sinned against, take it upon yourself in obedience to the command of Jesus to practice some spiritual maturity by doing your own relational heavy lifting. As per the word of Christ, go and tell him his fault. And this word here for tell him his fault, it's a strong word. It actually means to go and sternly admonish. It means to expose, to point it out, to show, to bring to light, to reprove for the purpose of correction. It's a call for a direct approach. And this is something the Lord has persistently called for from His people all throughout Scripture. From the nation of Israel, way back in Leviticus, where we read in chapter 19, verses 17 to 18, You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your brother, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now that phrase there, reason frankly, means once again to be in the front, to be open with your fellow Israelite. In our case, our fellow Christian. It means to admonish, to warn clearly and forcefully. And again, as the Apostle Paul wrote to the Thessalonian church, to Christians who did not obey the commands that he wrote to them in his second letter, he told them to warn that person as a brother. And again, that word for warn means to admonish and to instruct professing believers how they are ought, ought to behave as the people of Christ. And again, Paul writing to Titus and how Titus ought to deal with those who stir up and cause division in the church among the faithful. He, warned, he exhorted Titus saying this in Titus 3, 10 to 11. As for the person who stirs up division after warning him once, then twice, 
have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Again, that word for warning means to admonish, to firmly reprimand with an eye to instructing them in the ways of the Lord. And you see what he said next, if they don't listen, have nothing more to do with them, meaning avoid them, meaning steer clear for them, from them. And as we read in Colossians earlier, the Apostle Paul said, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Admonishing is the task of the believers with each other. And Luke 17, verse 3, which is a kind of a one-sentence summary of this entire section, Jesus said, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. So do you see this repeated call for clear, admonishing, rebuke, and reproof? The exposing of sin, these are necessary parts of church life. And humble, childlike disciples will make it their duty to both reprove and to be reproved. And they'll take both really seriously. And the first time we go and we tell those who've sinned against us their fault, look at what the text says next. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Meaning, only you two. Only you in private in hopes of promoting a dialogue between you. If you start bringing it up in public in front of a bunch of people, that can really spark the pride, right? But together, two of you will promote dialogue. And this is the first step. This is the only step that one who's been sinned against is permitted to take. You go to your brother. You tell him or her their sin between you and him or her alone. And look at verse 15. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. And here's the primary reason. This is the intention for the pointing out of sin. It isn't to receive some sort of personal satisfaction. You're not going to appease your own sense of justice. You're going to help the person that has sinned against you. You are going to them for their best interests in hopes that they will repent and confess their sin. See, clearing up our sense of personal offense is not the primary reason we go to tell our brother their sins. We go, the primary reason is for their growth in faith and their growth in love and their growth in obedience to Christ, which is why the church, which is why this church is not concerned with protecting privacy. Such privacy to sin is not a Jesus value, it is a cultural value. You and I are one another's keeper for the sake of one another's souls. We also refuse to buy into the commonly held cultural idea that love leaves people to themselves. Love leaves people to pursue happiness in whatever way they deem best, even if their pursuit contradicts God's word. If we are truly concerned about real human joy, then we would double down on our efforts to teach everyone all that Christ has commanded. We would double down on the knowledge that the way of Christ, the word of Christ, is the pathway to true joy. To leave professing Christians to walk the path of sin without warning them, without admonishing them, is a tremendous act of hatred against them. 
Our love for our fellow Christians is, is expressed by our concern for the well-being of their soul, by encouraging them, by exhorting them, rebuking them, admonishing them, and disciplining them as necessary for the sake of their true, lasting, and eternal joy. It is also for you to be exhorted, rebuked, and admonished, and disciplined. It is the path to your joy. And so to avoid reproving the one who sins against you, to avoid admonishing and disciplining an unrepentant sinner who professes to be a brother is not love. It actually does more spiritual damage. Love, in the biblical sense, includes warning each other of spiritual danger. But isn't it amazing how many professing Christians and churches are content to simply go with the flow of culture and refuse to be the courageous Micaiah who goes and confronts people on their sin. To simply let everything go and to incorporate all manner of worldly sins and cultural perversities in order to keep from the duty that Jesus has commanded us to engage in. To pressing each other to be holy and distinct. One writer, Richard Lovelace, quipped about how amazing, how he's amazed at how many churches pay their leaders and their ministers to protect them from knowing and obeying the real God. But the command of Christ is clear here. When you are sinned against, go and tell your brother or sister in private. And if they listen, you have gained your brother, you have gained them for the Lord, you have kept them from straying, you've been an instrument of blessing in the life of your fellow Christian, and if they, have, if they repent, that's it. Nothing more is required. The process ends right there. If you are the one who, who sinned against your fellow Christian and are being admonished in private, listen, you know this about yourself. I know this about myself. Our flesh is going to want to respond, isn't it? We'll want to justify ourselves. We're going to want to defend ourselves. But listen, when your fellow brother tells you a fault, tells you of a sin, just stop. Take a second. Don't try to find ways to default to some, way, to some method of getting out of it. Don't start tone policing. Don't start justifying. Don't start defending. Don't start in with the yeah buts. Yeah, but you don't know what's going on in my life. Yeah, but you don't know what they said to me. Yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. Simply listen, repent, and move on. But what happens if they don't listen? What happens if you don't listen? Jesus sets out two more steps in the process. First is in verse 16. Look at it again. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Meaning that if you are the one who is sinned against, when you go to the person and you tell them and they don't listen, that's, you don't simply retreat, but you regroup. And out of love for the sinning brother, you try again. The one sinned against must now seek mature, God-fearing, spiritual people as witnesses. Witnesses who can testify to their attempts at reconciliation and repentance. And these witnesses perform a few functions. First, they are a protection against the petty 
who might abuse this text and out of anger and bitterness bring charges against an innocent person. So you might not have sinned against them and they're just trying to get at you. And these witnesses will be able to clear that up. Second, they are either witnesses of the sin or those who can and will speak to the efforts that you've made at reconciliation. Third, they add weight and gravity to the situation and they provide the sinner with an opportunity to more seriously consider the admonition and call to repentance. And fourth, should the sinner refuse to listen to this second step, the evidence of two or three witnesses means that it can now progress to the third step, the attention of the church as a whole. Because Scripture is clear, no charge is to be brought or admitted by the church without the evidence of two or three witnesses. And again, this is a common repeated refrain throughout Scripture. For example, Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. We read, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. And again, in Numbers 35, If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses. But no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. The Apostle Paul reiterated this principle in 1 Corinthians, in his second letter to the Corinthians, saying every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And again, to Timothy, the Apostle Paul wrote, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And as the writer of Hebrews states, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. It's a a repeated refrain, the necessity of witnesses. Without this step, without witnesses to establish, to uphold, to confirm as valid both the sin and the sinner's lack of repentance, the process cannot move to the third most serious step in the process. But if the charge is established by two or three witnesses and the sinner still refuses to repent, still refuses to to listen, if the efforts of both the sinned against individual going and telling in private and the efforts of bringing along one or two witnesses fails and the witnesses establish the process, then step three is initiated in verse 17. Tell it to the church. Bring the sin and the unrepentant attitude of the sinner to the congregation of the faithful, to the gathered body of believers. And then it is now our responsibility as a collective whole, we are tasked with this most serious, solemn duty and charge to publicly call the sinner to repentance. And verse 17, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and as a tax, and a tax collector meaning the church's disposition towards this unrepentant sinner now changes. We now treat the person who, as one who stands outside the community of faith, one who stands outside the church. In other words, and we see it as a bad word maybe, but they are excommunicated from the fellowship. To treat someone as a Gentile and a tax collector, you've got to understand Jesus is talking to his disciples who are Jews, and in this day, Jews had no dealings with Gentiles. They had no dealings with tax collectors. They avoided them. They knew exactly what Jesus was telling them to do here. The Apostle Paul calls it in 1 Corinthians 5, a purging of the evil person from among you. And it means, according to Romans 16, that we avoid them. 
It means, according to 2 Thessalonians 3, that we keep away from them. It means, 2 Thessalonians 3.14, that we have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. It means, according to 2 John 10, that we do not receive him into our house or give him any greeting. And the point of all of this, again, is restorative. It is the hope. We are doing this in hopes of the sinner's repentance. We are also doing it to protect the church from the leaven of unrepentant sin. Now, I want you to hear something here. See, our culture views this word stigma as kind of a dirty word, right? But this is exactly what happens with those who are excommunicated for their lack of repentance. They are excluded from the fellowship. They are excluded from the blessings of communion. They are ostracized and they are stigmatized. Hear what Paul said again in 2 Thessalonians 3.14. Have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. The shame of their sin is to be continually held out to them. So, what does this mean for us practically? If someone is under church discipline, what does it mean for us practically? It means a number of things when you take into consideration everything that we've read here. It means that we no longer engage in small talk or any conversations with the person that might make them feel as though there is nothing wrong. No small talk when you see them at the grocery store or at some other function. Your presence has now become a reminder of their need to repent. It means no dinners. means no discourse. means no din- invitations to our home. And it means church membership is revoked. It means all the blessings of company and fellowship with the church are withheld to treat them as a Gentile and a tax collector meant to have no dealings with them. And for another body of believers, because this is our reality, right? We live in a reality where if you're uh, excommunicated from one church for a legitimate reason, you can walk down the church and start going the road and go to another church. For another body of believers, another church to welcome such into their midst is for that church to violate the proper pronouncement and discipline of the church and to promote the loss of that person's soul. It is to be a curse in that person's life. May we never be a curse in anyone's life. And while this might seem harsh, it might seem arrogant to the earthly-minded, it is, according to Jesus, part of what it means to be humble, childlike disciples. And Jesus continues by speaking of the authority the church has to excommunicate and to bind unrepentant sinners in verse 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Do you see the harmony that exists between the obedient church on earth and the Lord in heaven? Christ's command to the church and the church when it properly follows his command and finds itself pronouncing either bound or loosed is confirmed by heaven. The obedient church forbidding entry to the unrepentant sinner clearly telling such a one that they will not and they cannot, should they remain in their unrepentant state, enter the kingdom, if they continue in their deliberate, persistent impenitence despite so serious a warning, despite so serious a pronouncement, shows this reality that they are in fact unbelievers in need of salvation. Because the Christian in whom the Holy Spirit lives repents of their sin, trusts in Christ for salvation. Do not mistake the grace of God 
for a license to sin. It is not. And this is our responsibility as a church. This is the command of Christ set down for us to discipline unrepentant members. And this is one of the benefits and blessings of membership. I know it may not sound like it, but this is one of the best blessings and benefits of membership. You, by becoming a member of a local church, signal to that body of believers your intention to submit to that church, submit to its leadership, as that church now takes accountability before the Lord for your spiritual development, for your spiritual maturation, for your obedience to Christ, and for your growth in holiness. And that's a wonderful thing, because you can't do it alone. I can't do it alone. We need each other every step of the way as we try to obey and live for our Lord Jesus Christ in a world that is consistently trying to trip us up. And so Jesus concludes this section on humble, childlike discipleship with these words in verses 19 and 20. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or more are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Now, there aren't many texts that are more misused and misunderstood than this one, right? This is not a prosperity gospel text, as if two Christians can get together and agree that they should be rich, and the Lord is going to say, all right, you've agreed, I'm going to make you rich. This isn't a text, also, this is not a text that promotes any gathering of Christians as church. Some have used this idea of where two or more are gathered in my name, there I am among them, to justify the uh, idea that the local church is dispensable to the Christian. You can have church on Sunday mornings when you're playing golf, or on the baseball diamond, or at the hockey arena, or wherever you find two or three Christians together. But this is a complete misrepresentation and misapplication of the text. Look where it's found. It's referring specifically to the process of restoring unrepentant sinners. And the Reformers and early Protestant confessions of faith, they all recognized three scriptural necessities for anybody that calls themselves a church, without which there is no church. The three things are the proper preaching of God's word, the administration of the ordinances of communion and baptism, and the practice of church discipline. Where these three things are, there is a church. And the words of Jesus here, like I said, they're connected to what's come before. Where two of you agree, the idea here is where two of you are harmonious, they're of of one mind. The word carries with it the picture of musical instruments complementing each other and playing beautiful music and refers to the church's gathering to bind and loose as they have followed the appropriate process set out by Christ where two or three are gathered in the name of Christ for the purpose of gaining and laboring to restore their unrepentant brother, Christ has promised that God will help and aid believers in this most difficult and laborious task. Because it is difficult. It's difficult, it's painful when sinners remain unrepentant and we must follow this outline. We aren't alone in the process. Christ is with us. He is in our midst He is imparting to us as his body, as his church, strength and direction and comfort in that labor. So, has someone sinned against you and you've disobeyed the command of the Lord Jesus Christ in your response? Then you hear his word this morning and obey. 
Go and tell your brother his fault between you and him. And if you've gossiped, if you've held on to bitterness, then confess that sin to your brother and glorify Christ as you are restored and reconciled one to another. Are you one who's sinned against a brother and refused to listen when that sin was pointed out? Then you must go and repent for the glory of Christ. Are you one who is under church discipline somewhere else for some unrepentant sin and have now come here? If that's you, we agree with the binding placed upon you by the church you've left and we ask you to leave. To all who would be humble, childlike disciples of Christ, see how seriously Christ takes your holiness. See how seriously repentance he takes repentance. See the gravity of the humility he calls us to. And I pray that we would be a body of believers, that we would be a church filled with true disciples committed to restoration, to reconciliation, to obedience to Christ's command for the glory of his most precious and exalted name, the name above all names, the only name given under heaven by which we can be saved, Christ the Lord who came from heaven to seek us, Christ, God come to us in the flesh to make his dwelling among us, Christ who came to seek and save the lost, Christ who lived a perfect life, who died a sin-atoning death, who, di- who died and rose again on the third day and now calls on everyone everywhere to repent of their sin and believe in him and listen, he is worth all the effort. So the charge goes out to you from the lips of your Lord Jesus Christ himself. If someone has sinned against you, go and tell them their fault. If you've been sinned against, repent. And in all things, above all, seek restoration. Love one another earnestly. Because that's our great witness to this world. Father, we thank you and we praise you for our Lord Jesus Christ and his truthful words. We thank you that you've given us scripture because if we didn't have scripture, we wouldn't know how we are supposed to fix these things because our hearts are deceitful. We are so prone to deception in our own lives and in our own minds. So Father, the fact that you've given us your word as the outline for how we are to live our life and it's so clear is such a blessing to us. We thank you for the blessing of hearing and sitting under your word. And I pray for Winona Gospel Church right now for all of us, for any of us that are holding on to some sort of sin. I pray that as we follow the process set out for us by our Lord Jesus Christ, that we would experience the freedom and the liberty that comes with dwelling in harmony with brothers and sisters in the Lord. In the same way that you sought us and forgave us when we we're undeserving and unworthy. I pray that you would help us to do the same for our fellow brothers and sisters. And may this be a place just loaded with an abundance of forgiveness. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.